Let us pray. Father, on this Palm, this Passion Sunday, we pray that you would impress ever more profoundly upon our hearts the reality of the lengths to which you have gone for our salvation and sending your son Jesus, the sinless son of God, to shed his blood and die in our place on the cross of Calvary. So even now, Lord, speak to us, draw us near to yourself, and conform us and mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of your name. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated at home. And good morning to everyone again on this Palm or Passion Sunday. This Sunday where we see Jesus fulfilling the words that we read leading up to this for many weeks that he was setting his face toward Jerusalem. It's so important as we begin this Holy Week that we not jump from the triumphal entry to Easter, but we have to go low. We have to understand that between the triumphal entry and the resurrection, there was the passion and the crucifixion and Christ's suffering and death for us. Today being Palm or Passion Sunday, I want to spend our time looking in some detail at certain aspects of that event. Specifically, I want to look at our readings in Matthew's Gospel, both the reading at the Liturgy of the Palms and the Gospel reading, which we just heard. And I want to look at who composed the crowd of people, first in that event where Jesus entered the city, and to explore during the triumphal entry what these people thought about Jesus. Again, we heard about this crowd in our reading from Matthew 21 during the Liturgy of the Palms. Second, I also want to look at another crowd, a crowd that gathered just five days later in Jerusalem, a crowd who cried out for Jesus to be crucified. We heard about them just a moment ago in our principal gospel reading from St. Matthew's Gospel. And I also want to look at who they were, how they viewed Jesus. And then finally, I want to draw some life lessons for us from these two events and from these two crowds. I think far too often we hear sermons on Palm Sunday or throughout Holy Week which talk about how quickly the people's opinion changed and which ask questions such as, how could those who welcomed Jesus as king on Sunday, the Sunday he entered Jerusalem later that same week cry out, crucify him? How could they have so radically altered their opinions in such a short time? In reality, by and large, I don't believe that we're looking at the same crowds or crowds comprised of the same people. And I believe the record of scripture attests to the fact that we are actually looking at two largely distinct crowds with very different backgrounds, agendas, and most importantly, very different views regarding Jesus. So let's look at crowd number one, the crowd present at the triumphal entry. This first crowd are those who went up to Jerusalem and welcomed Jesus as he entered the city. So who were they? Matthew's gospel doesn't give us much in the way of specific detail regarding the composition of this crowd, but we do gain a few insights. So additionally, I want to look a little further at John's gospel for a clearer understanding of who this group of people was. Now, as we begin this, we need to remember 
or keep in mind the timing of all of this. This is the week before Passover. Faithful Jews from all over the country are traveling to Jerusalem as pilgrims to offer sacrifices at the temple and to remember the Passover which celebrated God's deliverance from their Egyptian oppression. This is what faithful, observant Jews did. The first clue regarding this crowd is found in verse 1 of Matthew 21 where we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus went to two disciples. So Jesus and his disciples were approaching Jerusalem. However, they were still outside of the city on the Mount of Olives when this procession really began to assemble. In a sense, the Mount of Olives was the gathering place. And this first crowd was certainly comprised of Jesus' disciples, which is a much larger group at this point than the 12 we usually think of traditionally. Second, verse 9 of Matthew 21 tells us that the crowds went ahead of him. They went ahead of Jesus. The implication here is that many of the people in this crowd welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem and that they were not residents of the city of Jerusalem itself. They were likely pilgrims going there on their way there to celebrate the Passover. And many of them were probably already followers of Jesus at some level, or at the very least, they were intrigued by Jesus. We gain insight, or we gain further insight in verses 10 through 11 of Matthew 21, where we read, And when he entered the Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. When the inhabitants of Jerusalem asked, who is this? The crowds clearly identified Jesus as being from Nazareth in Galilee. I think it's accurate to say that Galileans had a significant representation in this group of people going to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe the Passover. And then finally, John's gospel gives us further insight into this first crowd in John chapter 12 First verses 1 through 2, where we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And then continuing in verses 9 through 12. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had recently raised from the dead, was only about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And in terms of geography, we need to remember that the Mount of Olives was between Bethany, where Lazarus lived, and Jerusalem. So I think we can safely say that a significant part of this crowd were witnesses to either the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, or they were people who had heard about and personally encountered Lazarus after Jesus raised him back to life. In general, as a whole, these were people from outside of Jerusalem. Most likely common people removed from the centers of power 
and from influence. So what did this group of people think of Jesus? Regarding what they thought of Jesus, their words and their actions give us insight into their perceptions. They would have at least in part understood the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because by entering on a donkey, Jesus was making a powerful and intentional statement. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy quoted in Matthew 21 verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus was making a claim, a clear statement about being the Messiah and identifying himself as the one who was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Riding on a donkey was also a sign of kingship. In the ancient Near East, specifically kings who came in peace, rode on donkeys or mules. There are multiple examples of this in the Old Testament. So this first crowd recognized Jesus as a king. Jesus was intentionally making that statement. He was making the statement that he is not only Lord and king of his followers, but in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, he's making the statement that he is the one who is the rightful and eternal ruler over Jerusalem. The prophesied one who will sit on David's throne. He is the king who comes in peace and he alone brings true peace to men and women by offering them the possibility of fullness of right relationship with God. Matthew 21 verse 11 indicates that they understood Jesus to be a prophet. Placing their garments beneath his feet indicated submission to him. Even if some of them understood or misunderstood that and thought of that primarily in political terms. Further, the placing of branches also signified this. But beyond that, palm branches were specifically used in religious processions. And John's gospel specifically tells us that at least in part, the branches that were placed before Jesus were palm branches. By using palm branches, we move beyond kingship and we move beyond rule and being a prophet to a statement of deity that Jesus is the eternal son of God. Finally, many in this group had already placed their faith in Jesus for who he is, the Messiah and Savior. We know this from John 12 where we read, so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Many had come to believe in Jesus. Many had come to embrace him as the Messiah and his Savior. What about the second crowd? The crowd that was gathered just a few days later at the Roman governor's palace. Who were they? Well, undoubtedly, some of the same people were present. But by and large, I believe scripture attests to the reality that this is a different group of people. This group is a group where the religious leaders are at the center of things. Throughout the past week, they had been observing Jesus and they've been continuing to plot against him. Obviously, many residents of Jerusalem, people who lived in Jerusalem, were gathered here. 
And I think it's safe to say that many of the people in this crowd were those in the loop, if you will, with the religious leaders, people whose, whose understanding of what was going on could at least be indirectly traced back to the religious leaders, to their perspectives and to their agenda. So what did this group think of Jesus? Well, for this group, Jesus was a threat. They were motivated by greed, envy, jealousy, and their desire to hold on to and gain even more power and influence. They were motivated by ambition, which is an incredibly dangerous thing. And we need to be reminded of that, brothers and sisters, because ambition is a worldly value that too often, especially in our world, in the United States of America, creeps into the church and our way of thinking in the church. So that the idea is that even in the church, we're to gain power, we're to climb the ladder for clergy, we're to climb the ladder of success, and we move up to a bigger church, or we move up to being a rector, or perhaps even our ambition is to be a bishop. God forbid that we would have ambition for that sort of a thing. But this is not a biblical value. As a matter of fact, human ambition, this drive to climb the ladder of earthly success is completely contrary to the values that we see affirmed in Scripture. The values we see pointed to as being noble and worthy of emulation in the Christian life. It's really the Jewish leaders the chief priests and the elders who manipulate Pilate and stir up the crowd against Jesus for their purposes. And their real motive for handing Jesus over was not blasphemy, but the desire for power over the people. Matthew 21, 15 affirms this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And then continuing a little bit later in that chapter, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. It was the desire for power that motivated the Jewish leaders. And Pilate? What about Pilate? Pilate knew what was going on in Matthew 27, we read, for he knew, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that he had delivered him up. Pilate makes a lame, formalized attempt to absolve himself of responsibility when he publicly washes his hands in verse 24 and declares that he is innocent of this man's blood. But the fact is that that is an impossibility because in the human temporal realm, it is Pilate and Pilate alone who has the authority and takes the step of handing Jesus over to be crucified. It is his soldiers under his directive who flog and crucify Jesus. And yes, Pilate can absolve himself or attempt to absolve himself by going through some superficial action, but he is still responsible. He is still complicit. And again, that should serve as a warning for us that when we, in some superficial way, try, try to absolve ourselves a responsibility for actions in which we implicitly take part or overtly take part or in actions that we could have stopped because they're unjust 
and we throw up our hands and say, well, it's not my problem. It's not my responsibility because that's the easy way out. That very often is a sin against God. The crowds were egged on by the chief priests and elders to shout, crucify him repeatedly. And they even go so far as to say in Matthew 27, 25, his blood be on us and on our children. What are we to make of that verse? It has been used erroneously and wickedly as an evil justification for anti-Semitism down through the centuries. I don't believe when we look at the context biblically that this refers to all of Israel or all Jews. It certainly doesn't refer to Jews in the diaspora spread throughout the ancient Near East. And it certainly didn't refer to Jewish converts to Christianity. It's not indicative that God has somehow abandoned the Jews and kept his offer of salvation from them. Anyone who would assert that needs to go back and read the book of Acts where we see something completely to the contrary. And we need to remember that Matthew's gospel was originally written specifically for a Jewish audience. God's judgment is visited, visited most directly on those there at that time who cried out those words, who were willingly accepting responsibility for these evil actions. And that judgment quite literally was visited on them and their children of the next generation with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. So we have these two crowds, each of whom had decisions to make. What did they think about Jesus? What were they want, going to do with the information they had? And as we close here, I would like to make some application and draw some conclusions and life lessons for you and me from the example of these two crowds. And I think we need to begin with the question that very much they were confronted with as well. What are you and I going to do with Jesus? And what are the lessons and the warnings here in these passages of Scripture for you and me? Well, I think the first lesson is this. Biblical knowledge doesn't guarantee walking in the truth. Let me repeat that. Having biblical knowledge in our possession does not guarantee that we will walk in the truth. Much of the crowd at Jesus' trial knew much more about the scriptures and the promise coming of the Messiah than the crowd of peasants and people from outside of Jerusalem who were present at Jesus' triumphal entry just a few days earlier. They had all of the information. They knew what the prophets had foretold. And it was being unfolded and revealed before their very eyes. And yet they refused to respond to and act upon the truth of God's word. Biblical head knowledge is not enough. We must respond. We must act upon God's word so that it is incorporated into our lives as an act of faith, so that it is incorporated into our lives in a way that transforms us and changes us and moves us to obedience that is in accord with the heart of God. The second lesson here is this. Be careful who you allow to influence you. It is important for each of us to ask questions. Asking questions is a good and healthy thing Questions like, why? What is really going on? 
perhaps most importantly, what does the Bible, what does God's word have to say about this matter, the matter I might be dealing with? And then in light of what God's word says, how do the actions and events we are observing or even perhaps that we are a part of line up with the truth of God's word? We need to be careful who holds influence and sway over us. The reality is that all of us will be influenced by people. And so I think as believers, it is important that we make a conscious choice who we allow to influence us, who we allow to shape our thinking, to shape our thoughts, to shape our perceptions and understanding of things. So that those who we choose consciously to influence our thinking are people who point us toward a deeper relationship with God and greater fidelity to his truth, to his word. The third lesson here, powerful encounters with Jesus still require a right response. The crowd who had seen Lazarus dead and now alive again had to respond. And scripture tells us that many put their faith in Jesus. But the religious leaders had also encountered Jesus and they had encountered Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead, but they chose another response. Pilate encountered Jesus. Pilate's wife even had a dream regarding who Jesus was. But Pilate still chose to do that which was politically expedient, that which was convenient for him. Just read John chapter 18, verses 36 through 37. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, their profound encounters with Jesus. Experiences where God answers our prayers, even in wonderful ways, still requires a right response. How many times have we seen people whom God has richly blessed, who God has stepped in and intervened on their behalf, people whom much credit and praise and honor is due to God because he has brought them through a difficult time. After that time is over, after their perceived need for God is gone, they go on with no transformation, without a right response because they seemingly have gotten what they want in the moment and now they don't need God anymore. We need to guard against expedience, against the easy way, even when we're faced with hard choices, so that we make choices which honor God and are faithful to him. I like the way Eugene Peterson states in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, because it captures the problematic mindset that we deal with in the culture around us every day. He says this, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. God doesn't call us to expedience. He doesn't call us to that which is easier convenient. He calls us to the patient acquisition of virtue. He calls us to holiness. And then fourth and finally, 
all were guilty. The crowds, Pilate, the religious leaders, the disciples like Peter who abandoned Jesus. They were guilty. We are guilty. You and I are guilty of the death of Jesus, just like they were, just like all of humanity, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. In just a few days in our Holy Week services, we will be singing the hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus. And verse 2 of that profoundly beautiful hymn captures this truth ever so well, where we sing, Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. All of us are guilty. But for all of us, the same possibility of restoration, the same possibility of redemption remains and stands. Because the cross of Christ reveals the guilt of all, but it turn in turn it offers forgiveness to all who would believe. Even as we are reminded in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he, Jesus, is the propitiation, the appeasing sacrifice, if you will, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what are you and I this day going to do with Jesus? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to place our faith in the one who is king and prophet and priest and Messiah? Are we going to trust him at all times, even when it's not expedient or convenient or popular or easy? Are we going to face him in life when we are challenged, when ambition wants to creep in to tell us, if you do this, if you act in the flesh, you can climb the carnal human earthly ladder to success, however the world defines that? Or are we going to engage, again, in the words of Eugene Petership, in a long apprenticeship in faithfulness and holiness and growth in grace and godliness? So that we, not only with our lips and with our minds, but with the entirety of our being, worship Jesus as Lord and Christ, as Redeemer, as Messiah, as Savior and as King. What are you going to do with Jesus this day? Let us pray. Father, search our hearts by your Holy Spirit and draw us deeply into the mystery of the cross of Christ who for our salvation gave his life, who for our salvation shed his life's blood to cleanse us from our sin, to redeem us who apart from him are beyond hope in this life and for all of eternity. Lord, draw us in. Lord, apply your truth to our hearts as never before. Search us and mold us and shape us.
into your image. That we would lay aside carnal, worldly traits like ambition and expediency and convenience. And in exchange by your grace and the power of your spirit, we would take up lives in ever greater measure of holiness and faithfulness and fidelity and obedience to Christ and his cross. And this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.